0: My dad was an extremely, extremely smart man. He had advanced degrees in mathematics and literature. And when he just couldn't grasp, I had a hard time.
1: Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, the author of two books for caregivers, and a frequent presenter at caregiver conferences and webinars.
0: And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist.
1: And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia.
0: Here we focus on the caregiver, offer practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two because we all know laughter is the best medicine.
1: And don't forget the wine, Mike.
0: You know I won't forget your grape juice. Fermented. I appreciate that. I appreciate
1: that. Fermented grape juice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we've talked many times on the show how you took care of my dad for seven years. And then after a short period of getting back to some semblance of normalcy in our lives, you decided that you wanted to help others cope along their dementia care journey. And then you became a CCC and a CCE.
1: Absolutely. We, like so many people, walked into this caregiving time not knowing what we were getting into and how difficult it was going to be, how long it would take, and even how to respond to um, dementia behaviors. And that brings us to today's guest, who is a dementia consultant and family guide. She's the founder of Alzheimer's Family Consulting, a family consultant speaker certified senior advisor and the author of the highly rated It's Not That Simple Helping Families Navigate the Alzheimer's Journey we are pleased to welcome Pam Ostrowski
0: good morning pam thank
1: you so much for being with us thank you bobby thanks
2: michael i appreciate the invitation and i look forward to our conversation
1: you know it's not that simple you know is is perfect Yes, Um,
2: you know, one of the things that we struggle with is in not realizing how complex this journey can be. And I know that you both understand it pretty clearly. Uh, And by helping families understand that complexity, They can make the plan that they need in order to actually have the best journey possible, have peace of mind, and no regret or guilt.
1: Now you were you were also a family caregiver, and you know we like to start off our show very often with people sharing a bit about their personal caregiving experience. So, our biggest challenge was
2: uh, when I first spent time with mom and dad at Christmas of 2000, and my mom started showing unreasonable anxiety over my dad mailing a letter and it making it on time. We're talking about the water bill. And so at that point, I realized something was wrong. And that was the start of our 14-year journey. So I moved them from New Hampshire to Phoenix immediately, well, within the first six months. And then we I watched them carefully. We eventually saw some behaviors that I saw, but my dad didn't. So it was all of that conversation about what's happening with mom. And then by 2007, uh, dad finally started to admit that there were some issues because mom was getting lost in the mall and he was struggling a little bit. And so we had to have the talk, which is one of the topics in the book, words to use. How do you have these conversations? And it's always best to have those conversations in advance and then kind of walked through my, my, we ended up in uh, continuum care so that we, dad was independent, mom was assisted, then mom needed memory care and then dad was uh, needed assistant. And so we just kind of progressed through the care continuum. And then dad passed away in 2011. He had dementia the last three years. While mom was progressing with Alzheimer's at the same time. And so she had progressed to an advanced memory care community. And then after dad passed, we moved to a different care community. And she was um, happy and inside. She was still there, but she couldn't communicate. She was non-vocal for seven years. Uh, So with all those conversations that mothers and daughters have all went away those last seven years. And so we really learned how to communicate through physical, um, you know, hugs and, and that type of thing. But we never had a conversation after 2007, 2008.
1: I appreciate your mentioning the levels of care and how they change as the disease progresses, because a lot of people aren't aware of that. Unfortunately, some people still think of care homes or care facilities as those nursing homes of years ago where none of that kind of support and understanding exists as it does now
2: and there wasn't any training back then either
1: yeah yeah
2: that's um and that ultimately now that I'm running Alzheimer's family consulting and I'm I'm presenting to caregivers I'm presenting to family members and I tell family members when you're looking at different care communities if your loved one's been diagnosed with dementia ask the care community whoever you're you're working with about their dementia certifications. If they say, oh, well, we do our own in-house training, ask to see it. There's no reason why you can't. You're, you're about to invest-
0: A lot of money. Uh, a a lot, lot of money. money. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you have every right to ask whatever question comes to your mind. And I know some families are scared to ask questions. So that's part of the coaching that I do is it's like absolutely not. Let's go find out what training they actually have. Because communicating with someone with dementia- as anybody who's in this situation knows or has been in it, like you uh, both, it's it's very difficult and very different than the way that we would talk with someone who's cognitively capable.
0: Now, you, you mentioned having the discussion about dementia care. Um, that's one of the things that I've spoken about at different conferences is having the difficult conversations. When would you say people should start having that conversation.
2: I would say in their 50s, if they have children specifically, but you want to be as sharp as possible, honestly. And here's the thing, and I I don't quite understand the mentality having been through this, and I was raised by two extremely organized people. My dad was a retired lieutenant colonel. My mother was meticulous and detail-oriented. So the concept of having a plan, we had a plan when I was 16 years old, I, I distinctly remember going to Hanscom Air Force Base and listening to TRICARE for Life and Medicare presentations. Um, not the way a 16-year-old wants to spend their <laughs> afternoon, but I was there. <laughs> and I now know everything there is to know about both, But um, or as much as you can. But the the thing uh, that we tend to do as a society, and it's it's global, it's a global problem. We don't want to talk about what our desires are later in life and i call it later in life planning not the end is near right <laughs> right because i think people think well if i'm going to die you know you kids know what to do well they don't and if you truly want your wishes to be to to be fulfilled as you are later in life and perhaps cognitively impaired at some level whether it's dementia or just mild cognitive impairment and whatever type of there's 70 different types of dementia So whatever that might be, it's really important for you to express and communicate, preferably in writing, what you want for care. What are the trigger points? Because that's what people don't think about. They just figure that you go from being normal, cognitively capable to boom, you have Alzheimer's disease. It doesn't work that way. It's a very slow progression. Typically, I will say typically, because there are definitely exceptions to that. But the the catch then is, is that, well, what what does that look like? What do those maybe, you know, 10 to 15 years look like? And really saying, you know, what's the trigger point? Is it a fall? Is it a broken limb? Is it a hospital visit? Is it, you know, you're not able to um, cook anymore for yourself, which is really what happened to my parents. That was the big trigger point for us. And so if you're not able to do certain things or, you know what, Maybe it's just that you're. It's not that you're not able. You just don't feel like doing it anymore. Why not move to the docked luxury cruise liner, otherwise known as independent living and assisted living, and have them do all the work? And my mother loved that idea. She was just on the cusp of losing her her words, and I remember saying to her, you know, because Dad was very resistant. I said, you have you have staff, Mom.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because that conversation is so difficult because the parent doesn't want to talk about their mortality, and the child or the caregiver doesn't want to talk about that happening to their parents. I know we've tried a number of times with our daughter to talk about it, and she, she's just total risk avoidance even though we want to talk about it, we want to let her know. Now, she's gotten a little better, but still, there's that resistance. I don't want to know. I don't want to hear that.
1: Yeah, she's terrified. And um, at one point, I was talking about the day that frequently comes when a parent no longer recognizes the child. And I said to her, if it happens to me, if you walk into the room and and I don't know who you are, I would like you to smile, tell me your name and talk to me about your mother. And what she said was, that's not going to happen to you, but I will tell my friends. And, you know, and I've worked in this field for 20 years. And, you know, Mike and I are doing this on a regular basis. And still, I guess she blocks out the fact that this is something that happens to millions of people. We're all fine until we're not. And it's best to be prepared. Well, the
2: dementia is not a given. It's not hereditary. Only 5% of people are, you know, genetically uh, tied to an Alzheimer's diagnosis. And so with the, with the children, the adult children being in denial, I think it's, the biggest fear is that when you walk in the door, and I talk about this in the book, when you walk in the door and your loved one doesn't know you, and you gave her the perfect advice, which is if that were to happen, just say, I'm somebody who loves you very much. And the the glint of hope to that is that just because that one day you weren't recognized doesn't mean that the next visit, you won't be the, like, oh, hi, you know, and say your name and say, I love you. Because the disease, especially with Alzheimer's, it's variable. And some, we all have good days, and we all have bad days.
0: One of the things that um, I've, I've seen is you talk about how to relieve fear, anxiety, guilt, and confusion. Can you talk to our listeners a little about that? Uh, how, how to do that? Because we all know caregiver guilt is so prominent.
2: It is. And so I actually said to uh, some people a few days ago, I said, do you realize that the potentially the worst care possible is for your loved one to stay at home, either alone or with you? And the daughter said, well, why would you say that? And I said, what skill set do you have to stimulate and engage a loved one with dementia? How do you know that they are not looking at you as a caregiver and not as the daughter anymore. You've lost that relationship. And she said, you're right. And so when we, we talk about the, all of the anxiety and the guilt and everything are driven by fear and it's a fear of losing this individual. And the bottom line is, is that as I said earlier, this is a variable disease. There will be good days and bad days. And so, So the best thing to have is a plan so that you understand and have peace of mind that on this journey, you're going to have somebody next to you. That's what I do uh, to, to voice your concerns and walk through that. The guilt is a sense of feeling that, oh, well, if I let somebody else take care of my loved one, then I'm not doing my job. And love is about providing the best you possibly can for the people that you love, and unfortunately, with dementia specifically, you don't have the skill sets most likely, unless you have been dementia trained and you've gone through a lot of certifications and you understand the disease and what's going on and how to redirect and how to refocus the the loved one. Uh, the The bottom line is you need professional you need professionals to help you with that.
1: You absolutely do. Um, but there are many circumstances where home care is the only option. Mm -hmm. And of course you want to get as much support as you can. Um, I frequently tell people there's no wrong answer. Um, These home care facilities are extraordinarily expensive and going to become more so um, as more and more people need them. We kept, we kept, we kept, Mike's dad at home with us because he was the kind of person who, if he was in a hospital or if he was in a care facility, would deny he he would deny pain. You know, he had a broken rib. He he denied that it hurt. Um, he would tell the doctors or the, the nurses, "Go take care of the sick people. I can take care of myself." He was a very good actor when it came to hiding symptoms. Um, and they're busy. They're overwhelmed and. Um, to save his life, he needed to be at home. Um, And there are so many reasons. I always tell people there's no wrong answer, whether it's home care or a a care home outside of the house. Um, And no matter what decision you make, you may may have to change your mind because it may not be possible to continue. We hear more and more now about somebody with dementia being released from a home from a facility because of aggression or behaviors that they don't feel that they can take care, they can deal with. And that's becoming a big problem. That's interesting because I, I think that we need to look at
2: what triggers that type of behavior right? And, oh, absolutely, and where that need comes from. Because when I watch and, and I will, I will be the first to say that, every care community so that's more than 10 beds group home under 10 beds and in-home care do your due diligence find out what they know about dementia because ultimately if if you're on you know and I like to call the the care communities uh doctor luxury cruise liners because of all the music and stimulation and meals and activities and things that go on but the the thing that we have to keep in mind is that we want our loved one to be stimulated and we need to make sure that when someone comes into the home, so in-home care, if you did it, you know, that those are typically running depending on where you are in the country, $28 an hour to $45 an hour, if there's a lot of care needed. So late stages, for instance, but, uh, and, and that is a much, it's almost double what it would cost to be in a care facility and probably triple that of a group home. Group homes tend to be the least expensive option, which can work out well for people. But you know, just looking at the the options and making sure that they're getting enough stimulation, behaviors usually come from lack of stimulation, entertainment, engagement, uh, and there can also be chemical issues there, where you know it is going to require some sort of medication. But for the most part, I've seen people who are stimulated and well engaged. No matter where they're living are you know can live a happy life but you know it's a
1: matter of understanding where all those resources are now i i i do understand i often tell people um, who had promised that they would never put somebody in a care home that what you're actually saying is i'm going to make sure that you get the best possible care and doing that make you know you let the professionals take care of them while you maintain your your relationship and I've actually had um, a couple in my caregiver support group. Um, the husbands, both parents, had a form of dementia, not the same dementia. Um, and in their home, they were completely disorganized. You know, they weren't cooking, they weren't paying bills, they were actually taping the curtains shut. Um, when they had them placed, they improved a great deal and became more social. And, you know, they were clean and they were fed and everything was taken care of. They've both since passed, but that was clearly the best decision for that family. Well, and I like
2: that what you said
1: is you have to remain flexible. And that's what the plan is about. What
2: the triggers are about is, okay. let's say that you do in-home care for a little bit. And that to me is a natural progression. Get a little bit of help because caregivers of of those with dementia actually end up being 20 to 60% higher likelihood of getting one of the top five or more uh, chronic conditions. And so caregivers of those with dementia need respite. And if they don't get it, they're more likely, especially if it's a spouse, to get very sick or even pass. So we wanna make sure that we're balancing the consequences of dementia caregiving with the caregiver's health as well as the qualifications of each option whether it's in-home care or moving to independent or assisted living or moving to a group home and it's really a longer conversation i mean we could spend the entire episode just talking about care options i do have an entire chapter on it but but you know that's that's the thing is that it that's why i said it's not that simple <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, Mike and I have visited a number of the care homes in in Northern Virginia where we live. And when you see the loving response of the people that work in, in the place and the options available for, yes, keeping them stimulated, um, one actually has a beach. Wow. You know, they have sand and they have Videos of the beach, so people can sit and listen to the ocean. I want that. <laughs> they have a nursery. They have a French bistro. They have a workshop, um, and they have a safe place if they want to go outside. And you know, it's it's fenced in, but it's it's landscaped in such a way that it's a pleasant place to be. It's like a park. Yes. Um, You know, and I looked at that and I thought, well, okay, I want to be there. (laughs) That's what I told my mom. (laughs) Forget dad, I'll move in with you. (laughs) Yeah. So they can be absolutely amazing. And it's, you know, as we both said, you, you need to keep your options open. And whatever decision you make in the beginning may not be what continues throughout their care. I always tell people, you are doing the best you possibly
2: can with the information that you have. And that at any point in time, you can change your mind. Right. The only thing you can't change your mind on is once surgery is done, uh, you know, and that's, that's the only thing that when you grant that privilege, then it's not not uh, not reversible. But everything else, you can change your mind. It's okay. Although we do say that we don't want to move someone with dementia multiple times. So I, I do want to put that cautionary uh, statement out there that it is very disruptive for them to move multiple times. So do your homework before you move someone.
1: Yeah. Um it's always going to be a difficult decision and there's often some pushback. You know, when first, you know, you might talk to your to your loved one and tell them how wonderful this, this care home is and maybe they visited it and they thought, oh, this will be fine. And then they get in there and the next day or a day or two later, they don't like it and they want to come home. And then the, the family member is so confused and so guilt ridden and, you know, What am I supposed to do now? Mm -hmm. And of course, we want them to give it some time because most of us um, feel a little uncomfortable when we're in a strange place with a bunch of people we don't know. Yes. And I,
2: I actually offer transition services for that specific reason because I've had several family members say, well, dad said he wanted to come home and he didn't want to be in this place. So we're looking at other properties to move him to. And I said, well, wait a minute, no matter where he moves to, he's going to say that because this is a transition period and it usually takes 30 to 45, maybe even 60 days, depending on the individual. And the problem is, is that the family members are treating the, the parent or the spouse as if they're cognitively capable. And their perception from someone with dementia is going to be very different. And even the concept of home, which I'm sure you've, you you guys have have talked about, where they don't want to go home. They want to go to familiarity. That's what they're saying. Right. And so this whole concept of the family thinking, oh, we're having an intelligent conversation and everybody's got their wits about them. No, you have somebody who's scared because their environment has changed, want familiarity back because their brain is no longer functioning properly. And they're panicking a little bit because like you said, they're in a new environment with strangers. And frankly, they're going to be strangers every day. So if they're in mid to late stage Alzheimer's and but the lovingness of the caregivers really makes that difference and they they start to get comfortable and they build habits and they start to enjoy doing things. So it's it's an interesting challenge to try to get the family members to not create a bigger problem by trying to move their loved one multiple times, just because the loved one said, I don't like it here, I don't need to be here. And, and they've taken them at face value. And that's, that's sad because they don't have that capacity to make that decision at that point, if they're in memory care.
1: Yeah, one of the hardest things for for caregivers and certainly for for Mike and I was looking at his dad and he appeared the same, but his behaviors were so different. And that definitely ties into, you have a long-term relationship with a parent who was the strong person, the one that educated you and, and nurtured you, and all of a sudden that's gone, or with your spouse who was you know, so capable in so many ways, and all of a sudden they're not, but they, they appear the same. And we hear from family caregivers, just like we hear from caregivers of somebody that's in a facility, they, they want to go home and what they want is to feel safe and comforted and and secure and you know sometimes i tell people as, as an adult through difficult times there were moments and i'm i, I do not have dementia and was too young to even consider it but i wanted my mommy yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> things yeah. were going wrong and i wanted my mommy yep <laughs> it's true and and you know there's such a struggle
2: with realizing, and I think that's where some of the fear and anxiety to Mike's question comes from too, is all of us, when we have a parental relationship, want our parent back. And because they're, they were the solid one. They were the one that, that, you know, brought us up. And so it's hard to realize that that individual, although I strongly believe my mother was in there at the core, they are still in there, but they have this amyloid plaque tau tangle mess between them and who they are and us on the outside and vice versa. But the thing that I I really, what's, what made me think of this is something that you said about the, the parent relationship specifically, but also spousal, is that never, ever treat your loved one as if they're a child. This person has lived decades. They've raised their children. They've had accomplishments in their career and in their, their life, and they have passions and never ever talk to them like they're a 3-year-old or reference oh it's mom's acting just like a 3-year-old today it's it's degrading and it it we internalize that behavior and we treat them as if they're children and then they get angry and frustrated with us and we don't understand why and and so we have to realize dignity respect and
1: and allowing them to be as independent as possible are the things we need to do? You know some of, some of the terms that we use in talking about them. I you know I try to encourage people, not adult diapers, not adult daycare, yes, not adult bibs. Take those not daycare, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, and then some people wonder why they don't want to go, or why they refuse to wear the incontinence. Um, Underclothing clothing that they need, whatever yeah. they called it before is what we want to continue to call it. Exactly. I totally agree. And it's, it's
2: heartbreaking to watch or hear. I've heard spouses say, well, honey, would you like to look at this picture book? Would you have said that to him if he didn't have dementia? No. So then instead say, hey, I brought a picture book. If you want to look at it, it's right here. That's how we would say that's the difference between the two. And then the, I'm sure you've heard or witnessed the um, the corrective behavior. No dad, it's not Sunday, it's Wednesday. What's wrong with you? Really, did you, why would you ask that question? And what
1: difference does it make? I, well, and
2: so that's one of the things I mentioned in the book is let it go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Do you wanna be happy or do you wanna be right? You gotta pick. Oh, exactly. You know, I love that and I use it often. Or do you want things to be calm? Or do you want aggression? Right. You have to make that choice. Um, the term therapeutic lying, um, it's not lying. It's entering their world. Um, and then again, that's that I'm in control. And you also get people that resist that. I would never lie to my mother. Um, yes. <clears throat> and I think, oh yes, you have. Somewhere <laughs> in your teenage years, you have lied to your mother and it wasn't for her benefit it was for yours exactly and and you know i always talk about it's
2: not lying it's giving peace of mind
1: uh-huh. and it's
2: a gift you can give to your loved one by by helping them feel calm You know, if if a woman was asking in mom's care community that where's the bus, the bus is late again. And I would always say, you're absolutely right, darn bus. I said, I'm going to go up to that desk up there and find out when the bus is coming. And she would say, thank you so much for doing that. My legs aren't so good. And so I would stop by the nurse's station and say the bus is late and we'd just keep going and we'd come back around the circle and she'd say, that bus is late. And we'd have the same conversation over again. There was no harm in any of that. Right. So I think we need to let that go as, as caregivers and as family members and spouses.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I, I had a hard time with that, with my dad circling back and circling back and circling back. Um, you know, my dad was an extremely, extremely smart man. He had advanced degrees in mathematics and literature. And when he just couldn't grasp, I had a hard time. And again, I didn't know then what I know now. Sure. And, and I had a hard time with that. Dad, how many times do we have to tell you? And of course, that's absolutely the wrong answer mm, yes. uh, or the wrong comment to make. Right, but, response. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, it, you know, the caregivers out there, well, God bless them. They have Mm -hmm. such a hard job and they're not in a position to go learn as we have done after the caregiving. Right. They don't have the time while they're in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why we do this.
1: Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Well, I think I made every possible mistake there is to make in caregiving. We all have. And felt all of that guilt and uh, tried again the next day and the next day and the next day. Yeah, and like you said, we're all here because education is so important. Informing people about what to expect and how to respond, and what their options are. Now, like I said, we've been in this for twenty years, and there's there's more help out there than there than there was back then. And we want to make sure that people have the information and where to get it. Mm-hmm. And so we will definitely put a link to your book on our on our show website.
0: Yes, thank you. Absolutely, I appreciate that.
2: I think the the repetitiveness I get I get that question a lot and Mike you kind of alluded to it where they ask the same question over and over again and I hear caregivers say I'm so frustrated with asking answering that question I said well what do you do and they keep responding to the question and I said there's a couple things that the brain could be doing at that point in time one is they may say something not and you respond but they don't understand the words that you've used so try different words because maybe those will actually get through to them what you're t- what you're saying and then the other thing is you know like for instance where's my purse well where's my purse where's my purse and to be able to say It's in the bedroom. It's fine. I checked on it. Everything is there. So let's go outside and have a cup of coffee. You know, it's literally physically,
1: if you can redirect and take them someplace else. Right. I often advise people to answer it in a different way. Say, for instance, one of the things is what time is it? Well, it's 630. What time is it? It's time for your favorite program. What time is it? Mm -hmm. It's time for a snack do you want a banana or mm-hmm. do you want a peach? You know, um, if yep. it's almost like a hiccup, Yes. they can't, they can't stop asking the question until we interrupt that connection.
0: That loop.
2: And I think that's a great way to put it. It's a loop. And they, we need to disrupt the loop, break the chain. And maybe that's a better way to explain it because I think we tend to use terminology that like, you know, live where they are, be, be where they're at. I don't think people understand what that means. And then redirect, although it's the short version of what we're saying here, they, they don't know what to say. People don't know, they understand the concept, but they don't, you know, what's an example of that? How do I do that? So having this conversation, I think would be very valuable for, for family members listening.
0: Well, it's been a joy having you on the show. Always, always learn something. You've been a wealth of information. Certainly appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us and our listeners.
2: It was my pleasure, and it's always a pleasure to talk with both of you. <laughs> and thank you so much for having this podcast and sharing information and bringing on different people to provide information. Everybody learns differently, everybody absorbs things differently. So Uh, your efforts here uh, you're doing so much good out there that you probably have no idea, but, but people are so grateful for you and what you're doing here.
1: Wow. As a wrap up, you know, there are so many points. I I can just imagine that our listeners are going to be taking notes throughout this conversation. Um, I mentioned before, and I'll mention again, I appreciated uh, Pam talking about the different levels of care as people progress through these diseases. Right. And, um, Having conversations early, and with early onset um, dementia growing as fast as it is, it's absolutely critical, I think, for every single working age adult to learn as much as possible about what's coming.
0: Right. Uh, You know, she said when I asked, have this conversation uh, in the 50s, right? Not the 1950s, but when your parents (laughs) are 50 or you're 50 talking to your children. But another thing that I really liked was don't speak down to the person in your care. Don't talk to them like they're a three-year-old. Let them have their dignity and respect them. Don't talk to them in baby talk, so to speak. And the other phrase is, it's not lying. It's giving them peace of mind. Do you want to be right or do you want to have peace? Um, So very, very important. Really enjoyed having her on the show.
1: Absolutely, and I I cannot reiterate enough, stop using baby terms when we're talking about adults. Yes. You can find more information about PAM on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby,
0: And I'm Mike.
1: And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia.
0: So please, subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show.
1: Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the designated drinker show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master.
0: And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between.
1: Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.